Today, we are joined by Chris Kresser, who is a leader in the uh, functional medicine paleo movement and widely recognized, a smart guy. He is a uh, trained as an acupuncturist, but he is actually a wounded healer, and I'll let him tell the story. He came to this discipline because conventional medicine failed him, failed him miserably when he was seeking uh, a, a, an approach, a solution for his illness, which was an acute tropical illness he acquired fever, chills, vomiting, severe diarrhea, messed him up for a long time. And, and you know, this is a great example of how sometimes bad things happen to us in life and we just get so distressed about it. But then we embrace that and realize that it's frequently it's for the greater good or for something far more beneficial for you that you can't see at the time, but you you only realize it in retrospect. So welcome. And Chris is the co-director of the California Center for Functional Medicine. He's been on Joe Rogan a few times, I believe, which is probably the most popular podcast in the world. So uh, welcome and thank you for joining us today, Chris. Thanks, Dr. McCullough. It's a pleasure to be here. So why, I guess why don't we just start with um, framing your... Um, entrance into this area mm -hmm. through your personal experience, because you can certainly share it better than I can recount. Sure. Yeah. So in my early 20s, I took off on a around the world trip. Uh, I was doing some surfing in Indonesia. And I, as you mentioned, I got an acute tropical illness, fever, chills, diarrhea, delirium. I don't really remember much of what happened during those few days, but there was an Australian who was staying in the little village that I was in, who ha happened to have some antibiotics that brought me back from the brink um, of that acute episode. But that evolved into a decade-long journey back to health. Um, you, you know, that acute episode was just the beginning, as it often is. And, uh, you know, I, I came home eventually and, and went to my doctor uh, and told him what was going on. And and then proceeded to see probably no fewer than 20 or 25 doctors over the course of the next several years in three different countries, um, including flying back to Australia to, you know, closer to Indonesia, hoping that they would be able to help me. And, you know, most of the doctors I saw meant well, they, they tried their best to help, but they, you know, I, I quickly found out that conventional medicine, while it's fantastic at dealing with trauma and emergencies, you know, if I if get hit by a bus, it's, it's mm -hmm. fantastic. I was really miserable at dealing with the kind of complex chronic illness that I had developed. And despite everyone's best efforts, you know, nobody was able to help. So I eventually decided that there was no one that was more deeply invested in my own healing than myself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. So I, I started my own exploration, which eventually led to returning to school to study Chinese medicine and acupuncture. And I chose that because of all the modalities that I had tried along my journey, that was what had been most helpful to me. Um, but then, you know, even before I, I graduated from school, I realized that, um, that I wasn't going to end up practicing functional medicine um, or, or excuse me, Chinese medicine, and, and I uh, discovered functional medicine and kind of moved in that direction. Okay, great. And um, I was a bit concerned with your, um, uh, I guess, association with functional medicine because I'm not, I mean, it's certainly better than conventional medicine, no question, it's levels above. But for the most part, 
they seem to be at a relatively rudimentary level of understanding of some of the complexities of these diseases. But we had this discussion before we, uh, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago on the telephone, and mm-hmm. you cleared up that confusion and, and actually shared the same concerns I did, which I was glad to see that. But so, um, it's, you know, this is not a wide endorsement of functional medicine necessarily. But anyway, that's a tangent. Uh, you are here today because you're, you've written a number of books, but your most re- recent one is Unconventional Medicine, which is really good. And you talked about your frustration with conventional medicine. And, and that's actually a, a significant part of the beginning of the book where you talk about some of the consequences of conventional medicine's impact on, on, on chronic disease. So why don't you summarize that from your perspective? Because you, I think you did a really nice job on that. And then we can go into some elegant solutions, which is the primary reason I wanted to discuss this with you, because sure. you really got uh, some very exciting, innovative, truly innovative um, suggestions and strategies to how to conquer this in the long term. Yeah, thank you. So, uh, you know, the, the problem I see with conventional medicine is as even though it's great for acute trauma emergency care, it, it's really not set up to deal with chronic disease. And that's because when it was developed, the primary challenges we were facing as a people were acute problems. If you look back in the year 1900, the top three causes of death were all acute infectious diseases, typhoid, tuberculosis, and pneumonia. So and other reasons people would see a doctor were also acute. You know, if you had a broken arm or a gallbladder attack, appendicitis, something like that. So the treatment for those problems was relatively straightforward. You know, you put the arm in a cast, remove the gallbladder, or once antibiotics were developed, you know, prescribe an antibiotic for an infectious disease. Those treatments didn't always work, but they, they were pretty straightforward. It was one doctor, one problem, one treatment, and that's the end of the story. You fast forward to today, we live in a totally different healthcare landscape. Seven of the 10 top causes of death are chronic diseases rather than acute diseases. And unlike acute problems, chronic diseases are complex, they're difficult to manage, and they usually last for a lifetime. So this model that we have uh, that was really developed for treating acute problems doesn't work for chronic disease. And that explains why now one in two Americans have a chronic disease, one in four have multiple chronic diseases, including almost 30% of kids who now have a chronic disease. So uh, we've just been using the wrong tool for the job is, is really what it comes down to. And this is why the healthcare debate, which is really focused on insurance and who, who has or doesn't have insurance is really is missing the point because it doesn't matter what the mm-hmm. insurance landscape looks like, if we don't get a handle on chronic disease, there's no method of paying for healthcare that will be sufficient, period. Yeah, that was my primary objection and actually lectured this at uh, Harper College. And uh, we did a video of that lecture and it's on my, on my site. Uh, when the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, was, was not yet passed, right. is it, I had no objection necessarily to funding that, but I absolutely massive objection to funding the wrong strategy, which right. is what the, precisely <laughs> what they did. Exactly. Yeah. yeah it's not going to work. I mean, you can, No, no. I mean, one or two zeros on it, it's still not going to work. Exactly. I mean, just a simple thought experiment will, will show this. It costs $14,000 a year to treat the average patient with type 2 diabetes. And <laughs> the most recent statistics by the CDC suggest that 100 million Americans now either have prediabetes or, or full-fledged type 2 diabetes. 
And uh, you know, you don't have to be a math genius to to multiply 100 million times 14,000. You get a number that's so big that there's it's absolutely impossible to to generate the money that we would need to cover that. So, and, and uh, actually, even though that number is high, that number is literally half the cost, the half what it should be, because it's not 100 million people. It's at least 200, maybe 250 million people who have insulin resistance, which, as we right. both know, is the foundational core of prediabetes and diabetes. Yeah. So, so there's those really. We, I, I think it's not an exaggeration to say that um, chronic disease is an existential threat to society mm -hmm. and to humanity at the same level as, you know, nuclear weapons and, uh, 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 you know, warfare and other things that we typically worry about and concern ourselves with. So I don't mm -hmm. think that chronic disease gets the attention that it should get uh, as a threat to our health, well-being, and longevity as a species. Yes, indeed. In fact, this, this approach actually causes its own complications. I just we just recently wrote an article that highlighting the fact that <clears throat> the top cause of death in people under fifty is now overdose from prescription mm -hmm. analgesics. Well, That's been, just crazy. Yeah, yeah. And there have been two studies. I think I'm sure you've seen this, uh, Dr. Barbara Starfield oh, back sure. in JAMA 2000, and then a more recent one in BMJ that, that suggests that medical care is the either the third leading cause of death on, on the record. But Dr. Starfield suggested that because iatrogenic events tend to be underreported, that it could actually be the first leading cause of death. So th these are studies published in major journals. It's not, you know, yeah. kind of, um, you know, fringe speculation. We're talking about, th it's a real issue. It's a real problem. Yeah, in fact, uh, I was still getting the print version uh, of a different edition of JAMA. And in July of 2000, Starfield's initial article was published. And I actually created the headline, The Doctors of the Third Leading Cause of Death, which became wildly popular on the internet. Hardly ever attributed to me, but I did create that headline. And uh, the uh, irony of Starfield, who was an MD, PhD out of Stanford, okay. is that she died just a few years ago. And you know what she died from? A medical error. Clavix. Oh complications from Plavix. Yeah, so, I saw that she died. I wasn't aware that that's yeah, how she it's died. Yeah, the ultimate yeah. irony, you know, yeah. she's pointing out these problems and winds up dying from the very problem she's yeah. pointing out. But wow. this is somewhat of a tangent because, you know, it's it, it's definitely bad. And uh, we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're preaching to the choir here, So, but it's nice yeah. to highlight that. What I really want to focus on is what the program you've developed that really addresses some of these things. And actually before we, which is called ADAPT, uh, ADAPT, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I think before we talk about ADAPT, there's another component that I want you to elaborate on, which is the misincentives for physicians. Because it's not like yeah. physicians are stupid or greedy or mm -hmm. in some kind of conspiracy mode. It's just yeah. the system is just not aligned for success. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I've, I've often said, you know, physicians are, uh, can be victims as much as patients are victims of this system. Um, you know, most doctors I know went into medicine to help people and they feel really frustrated that they're not able to do that because, you know, the average primary care visit is now eight to 12 minutes, depending on what study you look at. Uh, most primary care doctors are seeing 2,500 patients, uh, you know, on their roster and tw uh, 25 patients a day, which as we know, that's, you, you cannot possibly provide care in a, in a 10 minute appointment and you're seeing 25 patients a day. Um, the, the incentives for physicians 
are based off on how many patients they're seeing a day. Um, and with the average doctor in $200,000 of debt, um, they have to see that many patients a day in order to pay off their debt and, and be able to survive. And then you have, uh, in, in, you know, ph pharmaceutical companies whose interests are obviously not always if, uh, you know, or even most of the time aligned with ours or physicians. You've got insurance companies um, whose incentives are not necessarily aligned either with ours. And, and then you end up with what we, we might call reimbursement-based medicine, where the treatment that's chosen is based on what will be reimbursed by the insurance company, not based, based on what the evidence suggests is the best option. So you've got all these misaligned incentives, which almost guarantee that uh, the, the type of care that's offered to patients is not in their best interest or even in the physician's best interests. So it's really a minefield that's almost aligned or guaranteed to uh, essentially implode. <laughs> so, yeah. And it's no surprise that we have the, the epidemic of chronic disease that you cited, and, and there's a lot of other supporting evidence for this. So why don't we now shift over, unless there's any other um, preliminary items you want to discuss before that we jump into the ADAPT program that you've developed? No, I mean, I, I think I would just say that um, the, 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 parad the paradigm, just to clarify, like, I mean, th there's mm -hmm. three issues here. One is that uh, there's a mismatch between what our bodies are hardwired for and the way mm -hmm. that we're living now. And I'm sure we'll, we'll talk more about that as part of, part of ADAPT. Two is the medical paradigm. Um, that we have is, is totally mismatched with what we need for chronic disease, which we've already talked about. And then third is, is the way that care is delivered is, is mismatched. And we talked about that in part, but I just wanted to add, um, if we recognize that diet and lifestyle is a primary driver of chronic disease, which you, of course, have been writing about for many, many years, mm -hmm. then we need to acknowledge that changing our behavior and our diet and lifestyle is one of the most important steps we can take to, to prevent and reverse chronic disease. And yet there is our medical system just pays like the briefest lip service to that and is not at all set up to actually deliver that kind of care. So I think that's a really important uh, thing to point out as well. Yeah, it's almost impossible in the framework you discussed, all these yeah. misaligned incentives. I mean, that just, I mean, to how could you, the, the best clinician in the world is not yeah. going to be able to take care of a chronic disease in 12 to 15 it's minutes. A, it's, absolutely it's, it, not. it's physically impossible to do that. Yeah, it's impossible. And, you know, you might get some vague advice as the patient's leaving out the door. Hey, you know, eat well and exercise. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, patient, of course, has no idea how to do that and actually needs real support to, to put that in practice. And that doesn't exist in the system. Yeah. And, and if we had, if you and I both had the opportunity to treat someone uh, with type 2 diabetes, which I'm sure you've treated lots of people, mm -hmm. it doesn't cost $14,000 a year. No. It, it, it probably doesn't cost $1,400 a year. And my guess, if, if I was really tied to it, I could probably treat it for under $100 and maybe less. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And, and not just treat it, reverse resolve it, it reverse it, get yeah. rid of it, you know, yeah. make it disappear. So, yeah. It's yeah. just, I mean, these principles work. And, you know, well, before we get into ADAPT, I'm just mm -hmm. wondering, I've always thought that it's like, an, that the system is somehow somewhat like an alcoholic and that many alcoholics 
tend not to improve until they actually are in the gutter. And I'm wondering if you think your view of the conventional system is that things are going to get a lot worse before the incentives and the motivation is required to to turn to these therapies that truly address the foundational cause of the disease. Yeah, that's a great question. I've gotten this a lot um, as I talk about the book. And I, I say there's, there's a kind of glass half full answer and there's a glass half empty answer. Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, the upshot is I think we're going to get to where we need to get to one way or the other. Mm-hmm. But there's an easy way and a hard way. Um, the easier way would be is if we proactively decide as a you know society that we need to make these changes and we we start um, doing that before the ship completely sinks. Um, the glass half empty uh, uh, version is that we just continue on our current trajectory and the healthcare system can, it just completely implodes under the burden, the you know, growing burden of chronic disease. And then we have to kind of start, not from scratch, but we, we're forced to make these changes because it becomes abundantly clear that, that there's no way that we can keep going with business as usual. Now, if you held a gun to my head and asked me which I thought was more likely, uh, frankly, I think, unfortunately, that it's probably going to be the latter um, because I just don't, it's hard to see where the political so, and will is going to come from to change the tide because there's so many deeply entrenched financial interests mm-hmm. that want to maintain the status quo. Yeah, I, I was going to say I wasn't agreeing with the political component. I mean, that's ultimately one of them, but there's this fascist corporate corporate influence on the on the government so it's you know yeah. there's these pow- as you mentioned these powerful financial incentives that essentially control the regulatory bodies that we have yeah. that make it virtually impossible like you cannot do anything with with Monsanto and Roundup in this country i mean they've totally wisely and smartly from a business perspective captured the federal regulatory agencies and there's a, mm-hmm. the only thing you can do is good work up from the bottom from the consumer up and and make them and allow them to make educated choices yeah and pharmaceutical industry spends uh orders of magnitude more lobbying congress per year than uh something like the gun lobby which we hear a lot about how powerful the gun lobby is <laughs> but that, that they pale in comparison to the pharmaceutical lobby it's 10 they spend tenfold more uh, each, each, each year on lobbying Congress than the gun lobby does. So yeah, these are real problems that aren't just going to go away uh, because we want them to. All right. So we're going to stop throwing um, snowballs at uh, the problem and describing the terrible disaster that we're in. But, but it is important to highlight the depth of the problem because you, the, thankfully there's clinicians like yourself and others, of course, but there's a handful of people who really understand at the foundational level how to turn this around. And not only do you have the clinical knowledge to do that, but you've also sort of developed a, a very specific strategy with your mm-hmm. ADAPT program, ADAPT framework that, I, that I, I'm really intrigued with and really supportive of. So I think it's a good time to discuss what you Great. came up with. Great. Yeah. So uh, the ADAPT framework has, you know, the, the word ADAPT, of course, I chose because we need to adapt. We need to adapt individually to our environment, which has changed dramatically from what it was for most of our uh, evolutionary history as human beings. We need to adapt our medical paradigm to one that's more suited to tackle chronic disease rather than just acute problems, putting Band-Aids on acute problems. And we need to adapt the way that we deliver healthcare in this country and, and everywhere uh, for that matter. 
um, in a way that's, that, that supports the interventions that will have the biggest impact on chronic disease. So those are really the three separate uh, elements of the framework, uh, realigning our diet behavior and our lifestyle with what our bodies are hardwired for, mm -hmm. changing the medical paradigm to one that prevents and reverses chronic disease like type two diabetes, instead of just trying to manage it for the whole patient's life. And then three, uh, updating the way that we deliver care. So it supports the, uh, the most, the most important interventions, which again, are diet lifestyle and behavior change. So we, I'm happy to talk about each of those individually. Yeah, I, I think, you, you know, most of the people here are pretty familiar with some of the specific strategies. So I don't need to think we focus on that so much unless you have some interesting perspectives on it. But I'm really curious for you to dive deep into this strategy. So I think it's really a brilliant innovation and, and offers a, a real tangible hope and a solution to to uh, an alternative towards what's happening because it's not just telling people educating them it's it's really the integrating the clinicians into the model and you do it in a really elegant way yeah yeah sure so I mean maybe we can use type two diabetes as an example because this is a, a shockingly common disturbingly common disorder um, that that affects as we know now a hundred million people at least according to the statistics you and I both yeah. know that there are more more people than that so. So let's let's take a hypothetical person who is goes into their doctor and they're diagnosed with pre-diabetes. So this means you know blood sugar, fasting glucose maybe 105 or something like that, hemoglobin A1C 5.8. And what uh, you know, so they go in, their doctor says, well, you've, you've, your blood sugar is a little bit high. And the current standard of care in conventional medicine is to do nothing in this situation. It's not high enough where they start prescribing <laughs> medication. Well, that's so, actually helpful. Yeah. I mean, in this case it is, but what they'll say is like, come back when you have type two diabetes and then, yeah. you know, then we'll address it. Um, but what could happen in that situation is, uh, you know, it, it could look something like this. Okay, uh, the good news is we've discovered this, you know, that your blood sugar is high. It's not a full-fledged type 2 diabetes yet. And this, the earlier we intervene, the better prognosis you're going to have. You know, the more chance are, that we have of preventing or, or reversing this and, and, and getting you back to normal blood sugar and making sure you never progress to type 2 diabetes. And in order to do that, uh, we need to address your diet and your lifestyle because we know that's the primary driver of this condition. And so what we're going to do is we're going to set you up with a health coach who is going to get, you know, come to your house, do a pantry clean out. They're going to take you shopping. They're going to give you recipes and meal plans. They're going to work intensively with you to adopt this diet because we know that information is not enough to change behavior. If it was, we wouldn't be in the situation that we're in now. I can't just tell you to eat well. I have to actually give you some support in, in order to do that. And then we're going to set you up with a, you know, a personal trainer at the gym, and they're going to get you on an exercise and physical activity program that's going to also support these efforts. And the good news is your insurance company is going to cover all of that because they recognize that they could save potentially half a million dollars a year, uh, 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 over the course of your lifetime just by preventing you from getting this one single disease. And so they're going to spend a few thousand dollars now to save a half a million dollars over the course of your lifetime. So that's one just small example of how this, the chain, the, this, this model could work yeah. because uh, it's actually focusing on preventing the disease before it happens or reversing it once it's started to progress along that track. 
And nothing that I just said is not possible given our current technology resources, um, you know, and even the system as it currently exists. This could happen tomorrow um, if it was the way that we decided to offer care. Yeah, and I, th I think using type 2 diabetes was a brilliant uh, pick because, as we know, the foundational cause of that is insulin resistance, and insulin yeah. resistance is the core of almost every single chronic degenerative disease we have, arthritis, heart disease, cancer, Alzheimer's. If you take care of that, you're not only treating diabetic complications, you're preventing all these other diseases. That's right. So that's, that's why it's so core. And, uh, you know, so this integrating the health coach is part of your, part mm -hmm. of your process. And I think it's broader, though, in that you have developed this collaborative practice model. Yeah. And, and, and it braces a streamlined operation, reduced overhead bureaucracy, mm -hmm. and really cuts to the core, I mean, of, of what we need to do. And so why don't you expand on that? Because it really is. Yeah. A, it, yeah. I, I yeah. liked it a lot. So, uh, you know, one of the, the, the key changes with this model, of course, is more time with patients. We've already talked mm -hmm. about why that's necessary. If you're going to be talking to someone about their diet, their physical activity, their sleep, their stress management, and all these things, you can't do that in a 10-minute appointment. Um, we, we, we need to uh, start incorporating a team-based approach to care. And some of the best, most progressive institutions are already doing this, but uh, that recognizes that um, you know a patient who is dealing with a condition like type two diabetes, just seeing a doctor for ten minutes once every six months is not going to cut it. They need support implementing those diet and lifestyle changes, and um, they need uh, people to help uh, help them understand the significance of their of their blood test results. They need people to make recommendations. Uh, you know, about how to actually address those with diet and lifestyle and behavior change. So uh, in this collaborative practice model, teams, uh, you know, doctors and other licensed providers, uh, along with you know, nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants, which also have a broad scope of practice and can do a lot of what a doctor can do, but often can spend more time with patients, with health coaches and nutritionists who can provide specific guidance on all of the diet and lifestyle and behavior things. But then, as you mentioned, um, doing that within a context that is really set up to support people who are struggling with chronic disease. So that means uh, longer appointment times. It means um, getting rid of all of the red tape bureaucracy over, you know, bloated, inefficient uh, electronic medical record systems that have all kinds of stuff that just get in the way and, and frustrate doctors, um, you know, using technology to automate every, the things that can be automated so that that actually leaves more time for the things that should never be automated, the, the you know, the face-to-face -face direct patient care, which is so important. Um, and, you know, using, uh, you know, things like handouts, online classes, uh, video meetings, um, group care, where people with similar condition get together and actually connect with each other. And, and there's some community that's built around that. Um, really, uh, you know, there's so many things that we can take from other areas outside of medicine and apply to medicine and bring it into the 21st century in a way that really truly supports the reversal of chronic disease. And that's what the collaborative practice model is all about. Yeah, we could really leverage technology. And I was an early adopter of technology and I think I had electronic medical records in the mid early nineties actually. Wow. Yeah. So and now it's pretty much standard. 
but it is it is a challenge to do that and still have the dialogue and interaction yeah, and communication and, you know, with the patient. Because yeah. I've heard horror stories where they, the doctor never even looks at the patients the entire yeah. visit. Yeah. Just type there, in the computer. There are some that are better than, I mean, there's some EMRs that are actually designed for this type of medicine that we're talking about. And they, they strip out all of the hospital, you know, stuff that you don't really need. Um, mm -hmm. And they focus on only what you do need. And they have actually, uh, like the one that we use has uh, all kinds of features that make it really easy to quickly enter what you need to enter so that I can focus on the patient. But I also have a nurse practitioner with me and she does all the note taking. So mm -hmm. I can work, you know, just maintain yeah. eye contact with the patient and do what I need to do. And that's part of this team-based approach to care as well. Yeah. You know, from my experience as a clinician, unless you can have that deep eye to eye communication, you're just, yeah. you're going to fail miserably as a clinician. So that is absolutely essential. Mm -hmm. So, but I think what's really important about your model is that you're integrating these allied healthcare practitioners and yeah. not necessarily the nurse, nurse practitioners or PAs, or in my view, are pretty close to a physician, physician's level of experience and, and mm -hmm. expertise. Absolutely. But that the health coaches and nutritionists, now, the, the, you know, we both said nutritionists, but I want to emphasize this is properly trained, functional yes. medicine style nutritionists who understand yeah. the basics. I mean, the most diet is not a dietitian, conventionally trained right. dietitian, two different, yeah. they're light years apart. Yeah. So, and leverage their skills because they, they can, I mean, someone's got to invest hours and hours in this patient before they turn around. And these are the, yeah. these are the, 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 in my experience, the, the um, clinicians that are most able to do it. So perhaps you can comment on that. Absolutely. I mean, we know only 8% of people actually fulfill their, their New Year's resolutions. And there's a ton of evidence on behavior change that's, that, that, that all uh, strongly suggests that, as I said before, information is not enough. It's not enough to just tell someone, eat healthy and exercise. That just doesn't work. That's not how, you know, human beings... Um, need more than information in order to successfully change their behavior, especially if we talk about long, long term. And uh, what we know is that um, people need support. They need support from someone who is not only knowledgeable and has the information that they need, but who is actually trained in things like motivational interviewing, uh, coaching to strengths and positive psychology and other techniques that that are evidence-based that have been shown with you know with evidence to actually promote successful behavior change and so a well-trained health coach or a well-trained nutritionist that has these skills can be kind of on the ground with the patient working with them side by side to actually put these changes into practice. And, uh, you know, the good news is I think more and more clinics are starting to employ health coaches and nutritionists. We have uh, health coach and nutritionists at our clinic. I know many others do, uh, but we're still on, you know, on the edge of this. It's, it's not yet something that you see at every clinic, but I believe it has, we have to get there. And ultimately I would even say that the proper ratio of health coaches mm -hmm. and nutritionists to doctors would be probably like five or six health coaches and nutritionists to one doctor in each practice. 
Yeah. I would, you just anticipated my question. I, w- I was thinking it would be somewhere between five and 10. Yeah, I would say, you know, five, six, seven, depending on the patient load. Yeah. And, you know, uh, we're moving towards a program at our clinic where when the patient comes in, they actually work intensively with the health coach and nutritionist for several months before they even see the doctor. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, that, you can't make hard and fast rules. Some people need to see the doctor right away. They have a more serious issue that needs to be dealt with. But in general, if someone has a what we could call a lifestyle disease, which is, of course, most <laughs> chronic diseases, and they haven't yet taken the steps to address their diet and lifestyle, what's the point of them even working with the doctor until they get that stuff under control? Because we both know that in many cases, if once they get that stuff under control, they may never even need to see the doctor. Okay. So I think you'd have to be highly irrational to disagree with what you just said. I mean, it makes perfect sense. So the practical challenge to implementing that strategy, however, would be uh, compensation. Now, if the patient's paying out of pocket, it doesn't matter. But typically, we rely on third-party payers like insurance companies to to help the patient pay for this process. And in my experience, most most health coaches uh, aren't billable hours or billable visits. So what is your take on this? And then how do you see that uh, barrier or obstacle being overcome? Yeah, so this goes back to your earlier question about how are we going to get there. Yeah. Um, there, so there is a, a a a few. There are a few interesting models that have emerged. There, there's sort of test beds. Um, there's Iora Health in in Den- They're based in Denver and they operate in the Rocky Mountain area, and they are uh, basically trying to address type two diabetes with health coaches. And they they use uh, something called capitated payments, where they go to the insurance company and they say. Give us your patients with type two diabetes. We will reverse, you know, we'll, we'll reverse type two diabetes. We'll reverse prediabetes, or we'll at least get your diabetics back to prediabetes. And we're going to do this mostly with health coaches. And if we are successful, you pay us this much. If we're not successful, you pay us less. If we are more successful than we than we said we would be, you pay us more. So that's that's already an attempt to realign incentives. You're, it's actually performance based. Uh, compensation instead of the way it usually works in medicine where the compensation happens no matter what. And uh, that that system has been pretty successful. And I think um, it's a it's a good proof of concept that that could actually work even within our current system. But you know, this is this is just one company and in one one area. Um, so if that will need to roll out, obviously, on a wider scale for it to be successful. And whether or not that happens goes back to that other question. You know, is that going to happen sure. voluntarily or willingly, or is it going to happen because it has to happen? And is this just one insurance company you're referring to? Um, I think there may be more than one insurance company that sends patients to them. But okay. um, the, so, so there's, again, this is an example of it working within our current mm-hmm. system, um, but it's, it's not yet widely available. Yeah. Yeah. So that is the key. Cause really, you know, when I have was seeing patients, I, I employed a similar model. It was like mm-hmm. 20 years ago because yeah. we had the bulk, the bulk of the care was administered essentially by health coaches. They, they had a little more sophisticated training, but essentially they were health coaches. I mean, mm-hmm. we embraced also uh, emotional components because that's of yeah. course another massive component and it's, you know, a leading 
to the ability to implement these suggestions because typically there's some psychological trauma or barrier that is there or disbelief that they can do it or there's some secondary gain for being sick you know they've got to address those issues yeah well there are a couple other developments that i think are positive uh so the national board of medical examiners has recently teamed up with the International Consortium of Health and Wellness Coaches or ICHWC to try to create some standards for, you know, mm. a, a level of training for health coaches. And that's, I think, a step in the right direction in terms of legitimizing health coaching in the eyes of medical professionals and with, you know, eventually incorporating them into the healthcare system so that there is reimbursement uh, offered for their services. And wow. then the, C, the so, CDC, so there, there is an actual movement for the uh, the MBMEs to provide yeah. certification for health coaches. Uh, they have teamed up with this, yeah, ICHWC to wow, that to is define the standards. Yeah, so that's a, that's a big development. And then uh, the CDC, it's uh, which is not known as being a particularly progressive organization, uh, has come out and and recognized uh, publicly the need for health coaching and, and the role and contribution that health coaching could have. So, I think we will see even without the full collapse of our healthcare system, I think we will see more integration of health coaching in the next uh, you know decade. Uh, whether we can get all the way to where we need to get to is is another question. Yes, yeah, exciting. So, um, anything else you want to add to that? That uh, expand on, or maybe some some components we we skipped over. Um, I think one of the uh, you know this probably goes without saying for for your audience, but um, it really is a paradigm shift to move from. The idea of just using drugs to suppress symptoms to treating the underlying cause of a problem. And um, I've, I've found, in, even just with friends and family members, people who've been aware of my work for a while often get questions, you know, how do I deal with this symptom? And, I, you know, I assume since they've been following my work and they, they, they know the basic perspective that they'll know that my answer is, is going to be, you know, you got to look for what, why that symptom is there in the first place. But I think it's insidious. We all, many of mm -hmm. us were, you know, we've been conditioned for so long to think in terms of symptom suppression that we often for, forget, um, even when we have some awareness that that's not the right approach, that that's the way to go. And, and let me, you know, one example that comes up over and over again is uh, behavioral disorders in children. So mm -hmm. I, I opened my book with the story of a kid that I treated uh, that I call Leo. Um, and he had, a, you know, the, a, a combination of, of uh, disorders that are now disturbingly common, sensory processing disorder and uh, ADHD and, you know, some kind of aspects of autism spectrum disorder. Um, he was, you know, uh, would throw just these epic tantrums. Um, it was really difficult for his parents. He couldn't really even go to school because he, because of his kind of obsessive compulsive tendencies. And at no point during, you know, his pa parents took him to lots and lots of different doctors. Nobody even suggested the possibility that it was something in his diet or, you know, a heavy metal toxicity or any number of other underlying causes that could be contributing to this poor kid's symptoms. It was just a, a parade of different medications that they would try to address these symptoms. And his parents didn't even, didn't consider that. And, and, and that's, that's what we need to shift. 
uh, and that is a big part of the ADAPT framework, is shifting the attention away from suppressing symptoms with drugs or even with herbs or supplements. I mean, herbs and supplements have a tremendous role to play in treatment, but unfortunately, sometimes they're used in a similar way where you, you, know, you have this symptom, you take this supplement, you have this symptom, you take this herb, whereas they can actually be used in a much more powerful way to address the underlying cause of problems. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here as well, but I just wanted to point that out because I think at the fundamental level, that's the biggest shift we have to make mm -hmm. in terms of our, sure. the way we approach chronic disease. Well, and I'm sure we're both in agreement that you didn't know, don't necessarily need to avoid all symptomatic relief. I mean, as long as you're, no, no. I mean, it's okay to relieve symptoms as long as you're addressing the foundational cause. Exactly. And, exactly. and, use, and use it as a crutch or a yeah. Band-Aid, and you know that it's a crutch or a Band-Aid, and long-term use of that is counterproductive. Yeah, and sometimes symptoms can become their own cause. Like if you, oh, if, you if the pain is is intense enough, that can then interfere with sleep, which then causes other symptoms. So I, yeah, we're, we're absolutely on the same page there. I just think, you know, like you said, we always want to start with that exploration. What What is at the root of this problem? And, and at least ask that question. It's not always yeah. possible to answer it, but it, we should at least be asking it. Yeah, you'd mentioned sleep. And I, I think anyone who's uh, interested in natural medicine has a, an appreciation, at least, of the function of sleep. I, I recently read uh, Dr. Matthew Walker's book, Why We Sleep. Right. <clears throat> Have you read that one? Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was great. I mean, I thought I understood the importance of sleep, but I only understood like 10 percent yeah. of it. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that was your experience. I said, wow, yeah. how did I miss all this? Very eye opening. Yeah. yeah. So I, I wonder if you could just because you did talk about that a little bit in your mm -hmm. in your book, how yeah. one third of Americans are getting less than six hours of sleep. Yep. And literally 50 years ago, 55 years ago, it was like, uh, it was only 2%. 2%, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. why don't you expand that? Because sleep is so crucial to getting healthy. Yeah, it's absolutely crucial. And um, most people, if you ask them, you know, what are the most important things uh, you can do to maintain healthy body weight? The top, they're going to say, eat a good diet and exercise. Mm -hmm. uh, most people who study obesity have now, have now uh, come out and said that actually sleep is the second most important factor beyond diet in terms of maintaining healthy body weight. And even a single night of sleep deprivation has been shown to cause insulin resistance in healthy people with mm -hmm. no pre-existing insulin resistance. And just getting a few hours less sleep than you should impairs your judgment around food so that um, the next day after a poor night of sleep, you're more likely to make uh, you know, bad choices around food, which of course then contributes to uh, weight gain indirectly. So, so um, you know, sleep, if you look at traditional cultures, most sleep seven to eight hours, uh, most human beings need that amount of sleep. Of course, there are some outliers, um, but today, as, as you mentioned, a, a third of people are getting fewer than six hours of sleep. And that has just incredible repercussions, not just for, for weight gain and obesity and diabetes, but for brain and cognitive health, which, you know, we see this epidemic of Alzheimer's, um, you know, it growing each year um, for auto uh, immune function. Sleep is absolutely crucial. Now we have estimates suggesting that up to one in six Americans have autoimmune disease now, which is a um, pretty staggering number considering the, the burden uh, of autoimmune disease. Um, 
And just, just you know, at a, at a more basic level, um, like doc, uh, Dr. Walker um, explained in his book, sleep is the time where we rejuvenate and regenerate our mind and our body and our spirit. And if we don't get enough sleep, that doesn't happen. And we basically start to fall apart in every area of our life. And yeah, it's and, hard to overstate how important it is. And the problem is, is that it's so easy to think that you're an outlier and that you can get by with less and right. you don't need it. And, you know, we got so much to do and it doesn't really matter. And they just don't get it. Yeah. So that's the key yeah. thing. But, but you know, it, you said all of the components of, of the diseases, but I think foundational sleep is like one of the most crucial things, far more important than exercise for health. Yeah. For health yeah. and probably mitochondrial health. I don't think Walker goes into it in the book. And I'm wondering, the other top, I wanted to interview him, but he just doesn't want to let me interview him. So the, uh, but it, he, because one of the things he does not go into his book is about the impact of EMF exposure, specifically electrical fields at night. And I'm wondering if you've done any work with that in your own clinic uh, about helping people improve their sleep by shutting off the electrical circuits in their bedroom at night. We do have some basic recommendations that we give out about that. Um, admittedly, it's, it's not an area that I have a lot of expertise in, um, but we have patients who are highly sensitive mm -hmm. to that and have found that, that those changes have made more of a difference in their health than even you know diet and exercise and stress management and all the other things that we tend to talk about. So I think that you know just from what I've seen, there's a pretty big vari a, a variation in level of sensitivity. And for some people that can actually be the most significant difference uh, or change that they can make. Well, I would opinion that the, or a pine, I guess would be the <laughs> correct term for, uh, that they may not notice it, but it's still impairing them biologically. Yeah. So, you know, we, they, we just don't appreciate it because they have resilience or they're just not s symptomatic, but that doesn't mean that necessarily they're not being impaired by it. Absolutely. And that's one of the problems with the modern environment in general is there's so many influences that are antithetical or harmful to health. It can be really difficult to piece all of those out. I mean, yeah. if, if you're living in an urban area, you're exposed to a lot of airborne contaminants that you don't even really recognize that are going in. And, and I mean, that can be like uh, discouraging in, in a way, but for me, it just makes the importance of nailing all the basics um, that much more significant because if you're eating really well, getting plenty of nutrients, uh, you're sleeping enough, you're exercising and moving your body, you're managing your stress, you've got connection with people in your life, all of those things are going to make you more resilient. They're going to make you more able to deal with the things that we can't avoid just being in the modern world. And so, um, those are always what I come back to those, ba those yeah. basics. Yeah. And, um, you mentioned exercise, of course, and we didn't talk a lot about it, but I want to, uh, thank you and point out that you were really an early adopter of movement. And I remember interviewing you in a previous interview when you pointed out that you were walking 7,000 steps a day and I had no dang clue how many steps I was walking. <laughs> now, now, you know, I'm now I'm probably 15, 20,000 steps a day, but you were really one of the first people to point out to me the importance of just simple movement. So mm -hmm. thank you for that and for be recognizing that early on. 
Yeah, my pleasure. I mean, it's uh, it's something that I have focused on for a long time. I'm actually standing at a standing mm-hmm. desk here. I've got my treadmill so, desk over here. So am I. I'm standing with these. My latest thing is I, I have, uh, even when I'm sitting, I'm now pedaling the, the under the desk elliptical. Oh, it's, okay. it's, a, it's a neat little thing. So even when I'm in the chair and I'm sitting, I'm moving my legs a little bit. Um, but yeah, this, this, uh, I think that's the biggest shift in our understanding that's happened in the past, uh, 10, 15 years is yes, exercise is important. Distinct periods of exercise is important, but just not sitting as much and moving more throughout our day is, it has a, a bigger impact for most people on their health and well being. So if someone is completely sedentary, it would be more important for them to increase their their just general activity to walk more steps, to stand more than it would be for them to go to the gym two or three times a week. I mean, ideally they would do both, but mm-hmm. um, that that non-exercise physical activity is probably a bigger predictor of mortality or lifespan than, than yeah, exercise itself. Yeah, and I've interviewed Dr. Joan Vernikos, who is a real early leader in that from NASA mm-hmm. and pointing those out. So some of those steps. So thank you for doing that. And then I want to get back to the ADAPT program mm-hmm. and sort of get an update as to where you are now, and what your plans are for the future, because I'm really excited about this model and li- actually would like to facilitate and support you in, in its uh, spread. Great. Yeah. So we've, we've trained uh, over 400 clinicians now are, have either graduated or in some stage of the training at the moment. Um, so we have a program for, for licensed healthcare providers. And then in uh, June of this year, we're launching our ADAPT Health Coach training program. Oh, um, great. Which was an obvious next step, given mm-hmm. um, uh, my understanding and recognition of the important role. <clears throat> and, and are you going to coordinate that training with a certification by the National Board of Medical Examiners? It's going to be certified by the ICHWC, which is okay. that group that's working with the, the okay, NB enemy. And um, so anyone who does the health coach, our program will be automatically eligible to sit for the ICHWC board exam and get that that accreditation, which will be internationally recognized. So we're really excited about that. And um, I view that as as the the next step in this collaborative practice model, because we're training the practitioners and we're training them on why they need health coaches and nutritionists. And then we're training the nutritionists and the health coaches on how to work effectively with licensed clinicians. And, and we really want to create that synergy all under this ADAPT framework umbrella. So, so that's uh, what we're doing. And I'm, I'm really excited about it. So we'll definitely give us the links and, and the, the, for this because we'll put, it, uh, put them in to the article so people can sign up for that if you're a clinician or, or even a health coach. Now, my understanding for a health coach, and I wanna, I'm curious as to what your requirements are to mm-hmm. enter that health coach training program because the, the, more, the less rigorous academically you make it, <laughs> the more likely it's going to be useful because, I mean, there's some really motivated and knowledgeable housewives, not, not to disparage housewives, but I Absolutely. mean, no no formal medical training or health training, yet they, they can be some of the most unbelievable healers on the planet. Absolutely. And that is uh, one of the important things about health coaching is not to make the eligibility requirements too stringent because we need to train an army of health coaches. <laughs> right, absolutely, yes. And um, if you think about the skills that a health coach needs to succeed, it's really more about developing a relationship with the client. 
Uh, lots of studies have shown that the, it's the quality of the relationship. And of course, you know, this is true from a doctor with a doctor and a patient as well, sure. but it's with a health coach, it's even more about the supportive nurturing relationship that's developed uh, between the, 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 the coach and the client that makes them successful over the long term. Yes, a coach needs to have some specific knowledge in nutrition and, and, and lifestyle and behavior modification, but that's actually relatively easy to teach and acquire. Um, what's more important is that they have those critical relationship um, to, to, you know, building skills, the, the ability to um, help the client to discover their own intrinsic motivation to change instead of telling them what to do. Because that expert model of care where the, the doctor or the authority tells the, you know, the client or the patient what to do, that's appropriate in some circumstances, but it doesn't work in a health coaching context. So the health coach is more like a, a guide or an ally that helps the client to discover their own solutions. So you don't need to have a biochemistry background for that. You don't need to, you know, have uh, five, four years of graduate school to qualify for that. Yeah, so yeah, yeah um, most people who uh, meet some basic requirements will be able will be eligible for the program. Well, I, speaking of as long as we're on requirements, I'm wondering if you've considered adding some baseline parameters about their own personal health, because it would be seem to be counterintuitive to be taking instructions from someone who's morbidly obese, uh, right. you know, not exercising, not sleeping well, and really hasn't applied these. So, and I suspect you have, but I haven't discussed it with you. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Uh, one that we've been tossing around and thinking about how to approach. Um, that's true. I would agree with that. And on the other hand, some of the best healers and best people, you know, teachers are people who've struggled with something mm -hmm. that yeah. they're teaching and guiding Absolutely. with. So, like you. Like you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's, we're not sure how we're going to approach that yet at this point. Well, but if they're still in the process, it, 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 it would seem to be useful to integrate that, but obviously it's something you're going to work out and be, and if they've struggled with obesity and they've had success, I mean, that's incredible. I mean, there's yeah. a lot of people out there like that. And maybe there's a introductory phase where yeah. they're interested and then you could coach them to, to be healthy. And once they graduate, then they can go into the program and then start. Yeah. I mean, part of what we're, what we're offering that I'm really excited about is, is, um, the, in order to get the ICHWC uh, accreditation, or, or, uh, you have to complete 50 practice coaching sessions. And so through my consumer platform, we have people who are looking for health coaching and we're going to create a low cost health uh, coaching clinic where the students in the uh, ADAPT health coach training program work with these people, uh, really affordable sessions and a way that they can get experience coaching and then people wow. who are looking for coaching Great. can get very, very affordable health coaching sessions. So I'm, I'm really excited about that. Does, does, it, does this currently exist or is this going to be developed? Uh, in a few months. Okay, yeah. good. But because but, it's going to be a while before we get this interview out. So hopefully we'll have that available. That is just phenomenal. Yeah. Because that is the missing part of the equation, you know. Yeah. You know, I've been doing this for twenty years and teaching people, and it's helped. There's a number of people who can take the information, and apply it personally. But that's a relatively minor, small, yes. small percentage of population. Most of them yeah. need to be mentored. That doesn't mean you're yeah. anything wrong with you. It's just the nature of human reality. Absolutely, and I, I completely agree that that's the missing element. And it's you know, for years, it's something I've wanted to provide to to people who follow my work. Is like. You know, like you said, there's a certain number of people who can read a book or read a blog post and they'll take that and they'll run with it and be successful. 
And then there are people who can afford to go work with a functional medicine or whatever, you know, kind of integrated medicine clinician, but there's a whole gap in there of people who would be, don't need the whole nine yards, but can't get what they need just by reading or listening to a podcast and they need, they need some support. And that's that middle ground that we're approaching now. Yeah, it's so critical. And then you can use the information on the podcast or the articles exactly. and support what the health coach is doing. I'll say, now I get it. Because right. sometimes like only one or two little pieces, they don't make, can, they can't connect the dots. And once yeah. they do, it's become easy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's great. I am so excited, man. You have really knocked it out of the box. And, you know, this is exactly the type of thinking that we need to, to solve the solutions that you talked about early in the problem. I mean, we've got serious uh, challenges to, you know, essentially existential threats to the species yeah. that are, are not insignificant. And we need out of the box thinking like you put together. So I'm really grateful that there's innovative guys like you out there who are helping provide the solutions. Well, thank you. I, I mean, I feel like this is what I'm here to do at this point. And I'm, I've been through it myself. Uh, and I just want to help any, everybody else who's out there struggling with chronic disease, which is unfortunately, you know, most people now yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> to, 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 to find a better way through it. And um, it's been an incredible teacher and learning experience for me. And I've, I feel grateful that I actually, like you said in the beginning of the interview, um, illness can be a powerful teacher and it can mm -hmm. be a blessing in disguise. And it's made my life way better, actually. Um, it doesn't have to be illness. That's really true for any tragedy that you yes. encounter in life. And uh, the, you know, having that perspective of turning it around and reviewing it from a perspective of how this is, can really was designed to make you a better person. Yeah. And once you do that, it really alleviates a lot of the suffering that typically is associated with it. Yeah. So that's the tremendous opportunity we have here. Yeah. Well, so. that's great. Well, I'm here to support you and we'll definitely, uh, we'll probably revisit this as you continue to grow. And, you know, when we need to talk offline too about how else we can work together with you. So it's a great, great concept. So uh, any other closing items you'd like to reemphasize or state? No, I think that's it. I want to thank you again for the opportunity to, to get this message out there. Cause I, yeah, it's an um, important one it really is. And, uh, you know, I didn't, when I first read your book, I was a little skeptical because I think, well, it's just rehashing old stuff, but it wasn't. It was really insightful and innovative, which is exactly the type of material that we're seeking to provide with people. So thank okay. you for doing that. Well, thank you, Dr. Mercola, for everything you've done.